Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. This morning our text will be verses 10 through 19. Haggai 2 verses 10 through 19. So let us find our places there and stand together as we read the text and and then we will pray and and ask that the Lord would, would grant us help as we study and joy and insight. There are, there are things here difficult to understand. We certainly are ill-equipped in ourselves to handle them. So let us approach them soberly. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, Does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Father, please give us sober minds and hearts as we approach your word this morning, and please help us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts and minds in this room, that he would limit distractions, both ambient and within us, that we might understand these things and apply them rightly. That we would build your house with joyful hearts, enjoying you in the work. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. 
There's a, a customer service experience management company called Market Force, which just released its 2019 survey ranking America's favorite fast food chains. Okay. Who was the number one fast food chain in America? America's favorite fast food chain is Chick-fil-A, right? The area in which Chick-fil-A absolutely destroyed the competition, there, the, there was nobody even close, was customer service. Have you ever wondered how do they get sinners to be such conscientious employees? It is remarkable. Now, other, other fast food chains have wondered that same thing, not about sinners, but just how do you get people to, to be such conscientious employees? I mean, these people appear to love pushing chicken. Is it, is it better pay? Is it, is it better working conditions? Is it better training? Those things may be factors, but the main thing is something that the other places will never have. They will never have this. It's all about the chicken. And if you miss that, you miss the whole point. Chick-fil-A management, they get this. And so they give their employees free food. My first job was, was at Chick-fil-A. And back in the day, they would give us a pie tin. Every shift we worked, they would give us a pie tin. And the rule was, as much food as you could fit on that thing, you could pile it high, as much food as you could fit on there, and inhale in 15 minutes, you could do it. And a 15-year-old boy can do a lot of damage in those parameters. It's just, it's just so good that after eating two, two to three pounds in 15 minutes, well, then... Well, your shift just becomes about sharing joy. Uh, it, it is my pleasure to give you this chicken. Now, you, you would see a drastic difference in the customer service experience at Chick-fil-A if that company changed one policy, and that is if they were to say, people who work here can no longer eat our chicken. Chick-fil-A would become the new Burger King. You, you, you'll get your food eventually. You may not be greeted. You may not even be spoken to at all, but you'll, you'll get your food. I mean, the, the, the restaurant would continue to function. You just wouldn't be served by people who seem to love you because the employees would be missing the point. I mean, these, these people, they love their work because they get the point. And that's the difference between Chick-fil-A and everybody else. It's not, they're not just running a business. It's, it's all about the chicken. They're giving something that they themselves love. Now, many of us, many of us have been convicted in recent weeks about being preoccupied with building our own houses as we've, as we've studied Haggai. These post-exilic prophets, they're calling us to the work of building the true house of God. And that conviction is a good thing. Praise the Lord for it. It's, it's great that some of us have been moved to make some changes in our lives to prioritize the building of the body of Christ. This morning, we are, we are prompted to ask the question, what's the point? What really is the point of engaging in this work? 
And, and we might say just Im- immediately, well, the, the point is that God's called us to do it. He's given us a mandate. And so, so we, we gather people into the fold by preaching the gospel to the lost so that they might be saved. And then we disciple the saved so that they might be matured. And those answers are right. That's absolutely right. But I would suggest to you that based upon the passage that we've just read, it's possible to do the tasks of building and miss the whole point. After Haggai's initial message to the people of Judah, they repented of their inactivity and they returned to the work of of building the temple. But now, here in in chapter 2, he addresses the issue of the heart of the builders. It it appears that the people, they are building, but there's there's a problem. Their hearts are elsewhere. They don't want him. And, and yes, God has called them to build the temple. But here is a crucial question. What's the point of building a temple if the people themselves don't love and want God? What is the point? And if you think it's impossible to build the church and not similarly miss the point, you are mistaken. It happens all the time. People engaged in good things. Sharing the gospel with the lost. Getting involved in discipleship ministries. But their own hearts are in hibernation as it pertains to enjoying the Lord himself. Their their affections are elsewhere. It's, It's a great irony. A contradiction even. That we could build the true house of God while not enjoying his presence as we do so. I mean, having him is the whole point. And so here is the the main idea of this passage and the main idea of this message. God desires work and he desires worship, but he desires it from a pure heart that he might be enjoyed. God desires work and worship from a pure heart that he might be enjoyed. Enjoyed. Now you have in your notes what we might call three building blocks for that main idea. And we're going to work through those three building blocks very quickly before coming back around and assembling them in the form of an application for building the church. All right. In verses 10 through 14, the prophet shows, first of all, that the builder's heart matters. The builder's heart matters. That's our first building block. So look at verse 10 with me. Again, on the 24th day of the, of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. This is two months since Haggai's word of encouragement earlier in chapter two, and it's three months since the people started rebuilding. Now, Ezra chapter 6 tells us that the entire thing took four years, over four years. So they're just three months in. So early on, it appears that there's already a problem to address. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. If you're taking notes, you might write down Leviticus 6.27. 
there the law teaches that whatever sacrificed meat touches, anything that sacrificed meat touches becomes holy. What Haggai wants to know is, is that holiness communicable to a third degree? So the, the holy meat touches the fold of the, of the priest's garment. So then if that fold then touches something else, does that thing become holy? And the priest's answer is no. Holiness is not communicable to that extent. He's going somewhere with this, so hang in there. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Leviticus 22 and Numbers 19. Leviticus 22, Numbers 19 teach that whoever touches a dead body becomes unclean by contact with that dead body. So here he's asking a similar question. Is uncleanness communicable to a third degree? A dead body passes on uncleanness to the person who touches it. If that person then touches another object, does that object become unclean? The priests say the answer is yes. Uncleanness is passed on to a third degree. Holiness is not. The point being made in these two verses is that defilement is more contagious than holiness. Defilement, more contagious than holiness. Holiness is transferable to a second degree, uncleanness to a third. If something is eventually going to win the day in this system, it's going to be uncleanness. Now, Haggai... It's not just engaging in an intellectual exercise or what Paul would characterize in the New Testament as foolish speculation about a law. He's, he's making a point. He begins to, to make it in verse 14. Look there with me. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now, the, the people's problem, we'll see, is not mere ceremonial uncleanness, but rather unclean hearts before the Lord. That this is the case is going to become clearer in verses 15 and following. They're engaging in outward sacrifices. They're doing the mechanical work of rebuilding the temple while their hearts are far from the Lord. Look again at verse 14. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean because they are unclean. Their hearts are unclean. Well, then their, their work and their sacrifices are unclean. Their unclean hearts are defiling everything that they touch in a sense. Now, what is the most obvious work that they're engaged in according to this context? The most obvious work that they're engaged in is rebuilding the temple. And so the idea that, that Haggai is, is wanting to impart to the people is that it, it's not simply about doing the right work. Doing the right work does not create the right heart. What is the right heart, we might ask? Deuteronomy 6 gives us an idea. There we find what the Jews would call the Shema. The very first part of, of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 reads, this way, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your might. That's a right heart. That is what God wants. He wants people who love him with all that they are. And that's the whole reason to build the temple. It's so that they can enjoy God's presence and then spread his fame throughout the land. Remember back in in Genesis chapter 12, God says that he's going to bless all nations through the Jews so that they can enjoy him and then spread that enjoyment of God throughout all nations. God doesn't just want a house. He wants his people's hearts. He wants them to build the house so that they can have him. But throughout the history of of Israel, the people have missed the point entirely, bringing formal sacrifices from hearts that are far from him. They have a heart problem. They, they don't want him. The, the builder's heart matters is what, is what Haggai is communicating here in these first few verses. And he goes on to show in our next building block that, that building for the sake of building will not bring true, true blessing. Building for the sake of building will not bring true blessing. Look at verse 15 now. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Look first at the word onward in verse 15. If you're reading the English Standard Version, you should have a footnote. If you look at that footnote, it'll tell you that word onward can also mean backward. And the context should determine for us how we understand that word. The same is going to be true when that word is used again in verse 18. And this passage clearly indicates that what Haggai wants the people to do is think back to a previous time. So if we were to paraphrase what he's saying here, is he's, what he's saying is, prior to now, be, before you started rebuilding the temple, how, how did you fare? How, how were things going for you? And this is very reminiscent of chapter 1, where Haggai convicted the people of building their own houses at the expense of the Lord's house. What was the result? What, what did the Lord put in front of them then? He said to them in chapter 1, you sowed much, but you harvested little. They they never had enough. They never had their fill. They were never warm. He says the same thing here, but he just uses different pictures. They always had less than they needed. Just as he described in chapter 1, he reveals here that that state of want was a result of his sovereign hand. Verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me. See, God graciously brought want upon the people to turn their hearts back to him, but they did not turn, he says. Again, they, their hearts are far from him. That, that, was, that was before they started to rebuild the temple. But now, verse 18, look at verse 18. He says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, stop right there again, because of the context, we should understand this word onward to mean backward. And laying the foundation here probably means since they started rebuilding the temple. The Hebrew word here doesn't mean, doesn't mean only laying a foundation, but it can also mean 
commencing building or rebuilding. And this word is actually used in that way in Zechariah 8, 9. So if we back up just a second to verses 15 through 17, he was saying, think about that period before you started rebuilding the temple. You were suffering want because your heart was far from me. In verse 18, now he says, okay, now let's think about the period since you started rebuilding the temple. Verse 19, look at verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. What's the point? Well, they're, they're, they're building the temple now, but they still suffer want just like they did before they were building the temple. What is he saying? Building the temple isn't going to make any difference if your heart is far from me. Because what is the temple for? The, the, the whole point of the temple is so that he can be among them. What good is the temple if the people don't want God? They are missing the whole point. But look at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, what does the Lord mean by that? We would assume that he means he's going to give them all of these things that he's been withholding. The, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. And that's a fair assumption. But the significance of all of that fruit of the ground is not the fruit itself. We're students of the entire Old Testament and particularly the, the, the prophets. We would understand that the fruit of the land is biblically connected to enjoying God's presence. I, I could give you several examples. Um, in, in Joel and Hosea, the, the, the fruits of the land are precious because, because they are used in the worship of Yahweh. So losing this fruit is, is a terrible thing because it, it represents losing fellowship with him. Gaining it is, is gaining fellowship with him. This is especially clear in Zechariah. In Zechariah's third chapter, listen very closely to this. In Zechariah's third chapter, toward the end of the chapter, just after depicting Christ, removing the iniquity of the people in a single day, the very next verse reads this way, this day, this way, I'm sorry. In that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I'm going to say that again, okay? He depicts Christ removing the iniquity of the people in a single day. The very next verse is in that day, on the day that your iniquity is removed, every one of you will invite his neighbor under his vine, and under his fig tree. That's Zechariah 3. Now imagine how strange it is if we understand the fruit of the land is just literal material blessings for their own sake. If we interpret it that way in Zechariah 3, this, this is what we're saying then, okay? Your sin has been removed in a single day. You've been saved from the wrath of God eternally. And your first impulse is to say to your neighbor, I got figs! You got to try one of these things. This is amazing. That's nonsense, right? The fruit is emblematic of, 
of worship. And so you, you have, your iniquity has been removed by this reconciling God. What he's saying is, you're going to invite your neighbor, come and worship this God who reconciles sinners. That's what Zechariah said. The fruit of the land is a symbol of fellowship with God. So when, when the Lord promises blessing to Haggai in 2.19, he's promising himself. Which, which leads to our, our last little building block here. Building for the sake of having God is its own blessing. It's the point. Building for the sake of having God is its own blessing. When God promises to bless them. He's, he's promising unfettered fellowship with himself. Now, if we've been paying attention, there's this heart problem. How is this going to happen? This God giving himself to them. How is that going to happen while their hearts are far from him? They don't want him. That is the problem. When God said, I'm going to bless you, we can know that he had an ultimate fulfillment in mind. The message of Haggai alone, this, this book did not turn the people's hearts so that they, oh, all of a sudden they want God and they, they enjoy the Lord's presence the way that he promised they would in Haggai. How do we know that? Because Malachi, which was written after Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi basically brings this same message to the people who when he writes, they're still living in want and they still don't want God. They were still hampered by a heart problem. They couldn't fix their hearts. If we go all the way back to the last chapters of Deuteronomy, God predicted their, their, their long-term obstinance. He predicted their apostasy. He predicted the exile. He predicted that he would bring them back from the exile. He predicts all of this by saying, he explains it by saying, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And there in Deuteronomy 29, the Lord both diagnoses the problem and he implies the only solution. God must fix their hearts. They, they can't do it. He has to do it. And so part of the blessing that God intends in verse 19 is to deal with that heart problem. Now remember the people in, in the, that Haggai is originally addressing, they, they're building a temple which is a picture of something greater. It's an imperfect shadow as are the sacrifices offered there which are mentioned in this text. Raise your hand if you, if you grew up hunting Easter eggs on Resurrection Sunday. Any of us do this? Yes. In recent years, the phrase Easter egg has come to refer to something completely different. An Easter egg is something that movie and video game nerds look for in their chosen medium. An Easter egg is, is something hidden in a movie or a video game to the great delight of very close observers. Now Haggai has hidden an Easter egg here in this passage. Pun intended, by the way. This Easter egg hints at the problem to this heart problem. Haggai, in these first few verses, he back in verses 10 through 14, he presented our heart problem, or the people's heart problem, our original heart problem, 
by depicting the incommunicability of holiness and the communicability of uncleanness? Well, the answer to the problem is hidden in the imperfection of the shadow of the sacrifices that are mentioned there. You see, it's, it is not that holiness is inherently incommunicable. It's that these Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient to do the job. You just need a better sacrifice. These, these things that we see in this, this passage, they, they indicate the insufficiency of the shadow and they cause us to long for the substance which is Christ. See, Jesus is altogether different in that his cleanness overwhelms uncleanness. His holiness overwhelms sin. And he does so to the extent that he overturns the scenario that we see in Haggai 2, 12 and 13. So we'll back up just a minute into the, the, the first half of this passage and look at those two verses again. We'll start with verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Remember, uncleanness, communicable to a third degree. What does Paul say about us in Ephesians chapter 2? We were what in our trespasses and sins? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritual cadavers were ultimately unclean. And Jesus, he touched us in our deadness and took our uncleanness upon himself. 1 Corinthians 5.21, God, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now, if the principle of Haggai 2.13 holds absolutely, we would expect then Jesus to be tainted permanently and that he would then make unclean anything that he touches. But what did Jesus do with that uncleanness? Well, he bore it on the cross and the father killed it in him on the cross and the father buried it with Jesus in the tomb and the father left it in the tomb when he raised Jesus from the dead. The uncleanness inherent in our spiritual cadaver, he took it upon himself and buried it forevermore, no longer to be passed on. That's, that's how Jesus is better than verse 13. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Well, this, verse 12 combined with verse 13, highlights the relative weakness of the Old Testament sacrifice to communicate holiness Sin is stronger with these Old Testament sacrifices. That's why you got to keep sacrificing them over and over and over. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is a risen sacrifice who imputes holiness to everything he touches forevermore. He clothes us with his own righteousness once and for all. And here's a key point for, for the subject matter here. He then Gives us new hearts. Sprinkled clean, Hebrews 10.22. Gives us new hearts with new desires. Hearts that want God. See, Jesus is the answer to this, this heart problem. You remember what the apostle wrote in 1 Peter 2. 
He wrote to us there. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Different than the ones depicted in Haggai 2. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Why? Because they are through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices that Peter speaks of there. They are our godly lifestyles. And our kingdom work. And they're acceptable to God. Because Jesus has reconciled us to the Father. And he has enabled us to live and worship and work from godly hearts that want him. But here is where we need to think very carefully. Because Jesus has removed our uncleanness before God. Because he has imputed his righteousness to us and given us new hearts. Does this mean then that this text has nothing to say to us in terms of application? That, that the heart of the builder matters? Well, if, we, if we are students of the Bible, we must say that every building block in this text matters. That there are imperatives in the New Testament assume that we, even as regenerate believers, we still need direction and instruction, not only regarding our actions, but our heart motives. It is quite possible to do the right things from the wrong heart, even as a believer. And this seems to be the point that Paul makes, at least derivatively, in 1 Corinthians 3. The work of every kingdom worker will be tested by the Lord on the last day. Paul teaches there. Our work for the kingdom will be tested by fire on the last day, according to 1 Corinthians 4, that same passage a component of that testing will be the motives of the heart. And works done from a wrong heart will not survive that fire, though, Paul says, blessedly, graciously, the believer himself will be saved. The works won't survive, the believer himself will be saved. So, we... Regenerate believers, new hearts, we still need to consider the question, what good is a temple if the people don't want God? The, the whole point is for him to be with them and for them to enjoy his presence. It's the same with the church. What good is building the house of God if the church doesn't want him and enjoy him? That is the whole point of what God has called us to do. For you and I to engage in evangelism and discipleship as ends in themselves. Or because that's just what you do. Or... or just because we heard a really convicting sermon a few weeks ago about building your own house instead of God's, we're missing the point in the work. Raise your hands if since becoming a believer, you have ever engaged in some form of outward kingdom work or worship without your heart being in it. My hand's the first raised. I'm going to raise them both. Listen, brothers and sisters, family, Providence Bible Fellowship, God's desire hasn't changed from, from, from the first time he said it in Deuteronomy 6. He still wants people who 
love him with all their heart and soul and might. And if we're all being completely honest, we have to admit we don't love him as he calls us to do all the time. And, and that's why he graciously gives us his word and his spirit to exhort us to grow in love with him to that end. And he, and he prompts us to pray to that end. And we find the apostles praying to that end for us. Now, our loving him doesn't make us right with him, does it, right? Jesus saved us from our sins by his vicarious death and the imputation of his righteousness to us. He gives us new hearts and his indwelling spirit. They enable us to love him with all our heart and soul and might. But until he returns, we're not completely sanctified. That is, we, we haven't been made perfectly like him in our character and conduct. He's progressively moving us in that direction. We're not there yet. Therefore, he exhorts us to press forward in loving him with all that we are. And for that to be the motive for everything that we do in the obedience that he calls us to. And without the pursuit of him in the work, we are utterly missing the point of the work. When we are engaged in the mechanics of kingdom building, while our hearts belong to other things, we can bet that we will find the work less than pleasurable, less than gratifying. When we come to the proverbial heap of 20 measures, we will find but 20. And listen, it is gracious of God to make it that way. It is gracious of God to make the work empty. Why? Because like he did for the people of Judah, he wants to wake us up to see that the whole point is enjoying him. The work should be empty when it's empty of him. Look to Jesus. The example that, that he set for us. Th think about this strong and sweet Lord Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That passage begins, verse 4 it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria and at the end of the passage, toward the end of the passage, Jesus utters that, that, that phrase that, that, we, that I have said so many times in recent years, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Well, why was it his food? Why? It, it, it wasn't just that Jesus was all about fasting in the heat of the day in the armpit of Palestine. The, the, the context of the work that he was doing is what makes that statement that he makes at the end of the passage ironic. The work was his food because of the fellowship that the work afforded with his father. Jesus says one chapter later in, in John chapter 5, my, my, my father is working until now and I am working. His point there is I'm working with my father. And in, in 1410, Jesus testifies to his disciples, the father who dwells in me, he does his works. That's how Jesus explains all the stuff that he's done. The Father's doing his work through me. So Jesus is not only working with the Father, but the Father was working through him. That is the reason for the pleasure coming through in that statement in John 4, where he says, this is my food. You remove that. Remove that component. Enjoying the Father 
You remove that, and John 4, 4 reads completely differently, and he had to pass through Samaria. Remove the enjoyment of the Father from Jesus' heart, and it's completely different. You think of the, think of the one place that you would never want to live or even pass through, and that's Samaria, for a whole host of reasons. And if doing, if doing the work of, of the Father for Jesus was just a matter of ticking off a list of tasks just because God told him to do it, then he had to pass through Samaria means something a lot more like he had to get a root canal. But because for Jesus, this is about being with the Father and experiencing the Father working through him, then he had to pass through Samaria means he had to pass through Samaria. And his conversation with that woman make it clear that Jesus, the Messiah, was on a mission of love to gather worshipers to the Father. The, the work was wonderful because it was infused with love in cooperation with the Father as the Father worked through the Son. Now, in John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus calls us to the same kind of working relationship, doesn't he? The point of those, pass, those, those chapters together, Jesus says to us as his disciples, do work, do my work with me, my spirit working through you. And if you, if you have ever experienced God blessing someone else by doing something through you that you know you are not capable of doing on your own, that you've had a taste of what Jesus meant when he said, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. Now with that experience on the table available to us, enjoying God, the spirit of Christ himself working through us in the building of the house. With that available to us, we could see it's a great kindness of the Lord to make the work blasé when he is not the focus of it. He's the whole point and he wants us to know that so that we can enjoy him in the task. Now, how can we know if we're doing this though? How can we know if we're missing the point? Building without enjoying him. Here's a telltale sign. A telltale sign. That you're engaged in the forms of building. You're not enjoying the Lord in it. You are engaging in the work of the kingdom. Sharing the gospel. Helping other people to grow. But you have virtually no vibrant devotional life yourself. And that's the only way that the, that the building can go then. Because you are not enjoying the Lord yourself. It's a telltale sign. You're, you're like a Chick-fil-A employee doesn't eat Chick-fil-A. What? It just it makes no sense. What, what a tragedy to miss the point, to be, in, to be engaged in the work of this great and wonderful Savior without personally enjoying Him daily and participating with Him in the work. God wants us to build His house. That is obvious. He wants us to do it enjoying 
him. And to that end, we must pray, Lord, help us to be the church that we're building. Be the church that we're building. Enjoying your presence as we work and as you work in us and through us. And we must pursue him privately. It's the great passion of our lives. He must be the point. Now, there may be somebody here this morning for whom these things are completely new. Perhaps this is the first Sunday that you have ever been in a church. You've heard things about sacrifices and reconciliation to God. Let me just briefly say, say to you that much of what, what you have heard is, is not the most important thing that you could be thinking about right now. The most important thing that you could be thinking about right now is the fact that if you have never repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, you are doomed eternally before God because of your many sins against God and your sinful heart. This, this heart problem that, that Haggai holds out to the people in this text, you've got the same thing. We, we're all born with it. Jesus is the only solution to it. And the reason that it's a terrible problem is that it not only separates us from God in this life, but it separates us from God eternally. And the penalty for this rebellion against God, for hearts that are far from him, is that we are punished in hell for all eternity. That is the righteous and right response to sin. So this morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that is where you stand. The good news for you this morning, the good news is that this Jesus that we've been talking about, he would say to you, turn from your sin, trust in me, trust in what I did on the cross, taking sin upon myself, killing it there, being raised from the dead, trust in me to be your plea before the father judge on the last day. And you'll be saved. If you have any questions about that, if you're sitting with people who can answer those questions, any of the elders would be happy to talk to you as well. Just do not leave this place without those questions being answered. I'm going to pray now. And when I'm done praying, we will have a, a moment of silent reflection before the Lord before we sing a final song. Father, we thank you for your word and its eternal pertinence. We thank you for what you are you're doing in us, waking us to wrong priorities. We thank you for the changes that you're prompting us to make in those priorities. And this morning, Father, we pray that you'd help us to look at our own hearts, that you would graciously graciously prevent us from missing the point. Help us, Lord, to, to be the church that we're building, to enjoy the God whose name we are proclaiming. That like the Lord Jesus, 
we would we would love this work because we love engaging with you, enjoying you, participating with you in these things and experiencing you doing things in and through us that we could not do ourselves. It would help us to not miss the point that it is all about it's all about having you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.